Okay, well, welcome, dear listeners, to another edition of the Jacobs Podcast. Today, we're going to tackle housing. And joining me, I'm very proud to say, are my two regular guests, uh, Jordan Shopov from Wig Capital, who's live from Melbourne. Welcome, Jordan. Thanks, Sean. Great to be back again. And um, congratulations on your recent engagement, Sean. Oh, thanks very much, Jordan. I really appreciate that. Yeah, finally got there. She didn't. She didn't take the question on notice or anything like that. <laughs> no, look, direct answer, very straightforward, <laughs> and yeah. But what we, warm wishes, well received. Thank you, Jordan. And um, live from New York, uh, economics PhD student from New York University, Will Witheridge. Welcome. Great to be with you, Sean, and uh, congrats from me too. Thanks very much. Warmly received, gents. I didn't expect us to start off on this note. It wasn't in the show notes, but I will, this is warmly received. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. oh, good stuff. But um, as briefly mentioned in the intro, tackle housing today. And um, it's based around what we'll do is probably just throw some questions at Jordan uh, Shopov, who recently put out a very, very good and thorough analysis on the state of the Australian housing market. Um, and it obviously looks at housing, but lending practices, mortgages, the difference between pr- price and value, and then just ultimately explains why we're in a property bubble at the moment in Australia. So I just thought that this would be a really good chance for us to uh, pick your brains, Jordan, and stimulate some discussion, which I think would be really useful um, for listeners out there. But just firstly, it's a great bit of analysis. It's like nothing I've read um, in terms of how thorough it is um, and very well written as well. But just firstly, why did you actually write it? Why did you put it together? Um, Thanks for that kind feedback, Sean. Yeah, a lot of work went into it, so I appreciate that you found it interesting and a good analysis. Um, It didn't come out of one particular... It wasn't like a spare-of-the-moment thing. It was more... Um, it had been developing over a couple of years. I think I'd noticed a few things um, piecemeal over the last four or five years um, popping up in the news and um, you know hearing about friends and family and things going on with the property market. And I think over a period of time, I'd heard a few things which I thought were sounded a bit outlandish and didn't seem rational and kind of thought, oh, you know, there was many times where I thought I should look into this and eventually got to the stage where I was like, no, I need it sit down, do my homework and figure out what's going on. I think it was around the time the Royal Commission got announced that I really started delving into what was happening in the property market, what was happening in the mortgage market, and really to nut down onto this question of whether Australia has a property bubble. It's something that people have talked about for years and, yeah, I just wanted to figure it out for myself. And so that was the that was the impetus for the essay. So to, to start us off, Jordan, do you want to talk a bit about the this concept of the difference between price and value of a house because this is really fundamental to the idea of uh, of a property bubble so maybe you can tease that out a bit for, for listeners yeah that and that that's a great question like that's that's probably the most important question for any um, home buyer or a, specifically for a property investor and um, it's how I start off the essay it's how I lay out the foundations for the argument because yeah the word bubble gets thrown around a bit a bit too much, and uh, in order to make that a, that type of claim, you really need to have an understanding of how to value an asset, and understand how far prices have diverged from 
from those values. So just to give listeners the sort of the bit of background, the value of an asset in the most simple terms is the sum of all the cash flows that that asset will spin off over its life until judgment day. And those those cash flows have to be discounted back to the present. And by discounting, I mean the fact that a cash a dollar today is worth more than a dollar tomorrow. If you've heard the expression, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, that's essentially what discounting is all about. We, um, we, we value the, the dollar in our wallet now compared to the dollar in our wallet a year from now because it's more certain the one we have here today. So in valuing an asset, you're trying to get a handle on all the potential cash flows and earnings it's going to spin off over its life. And when you look at a property asset or a house, that ultimately comes down to the rent, the rental income that that property could derive. So if you're looking at buying an apartment in, say, the Melbourne CBD or the Brisbane CBD, the way you would start analysing it is figuring out how much rental income you could get from leasing it out, and then you'd subtract from that figure the you know costs of a real estate agent, um, the costs of council rates, water rates, and then also the cost of sort of maintaining the quality of that apartment over time like um, whether it's putting in a new dishwasher or retiling in the bathroom, these costs, although they might be lumpy, they have to be factored in to figure out the net earning power of the asset over time. And that, in a sense, gives you a sense of what the value, the value of the asset is. Now, the value is not a precise figure because the future is unknowable and uncertain. I mean, we know that things might go wrong, like your tenants might renege on their rent or um, something, you know, the building collapses or something like that. So when, we, when we're trying to figure out value, there's no precise figure. It's more a range of potential outcomes. And because we're dealing with the future, um, people's expectations are going to differ and uh, like elements of hope and optimism and fear and panic can come into play as well. And so the prices are... Uh, which assets and properties sell for are kind of a combination. They're an amalgamation of everyone's expectations about the future of that asset. And so because of people's emotions coming into play, we get these instances where prices can diverge from value. Um, And understanding the difference between price and value is how we assess the risk of an investment decision. So, the goal, if we if we think about any property buyer or any home buyer, the ultimate goal is you don't want to lose money. That's that's the risk of your investment. If you overpay or you buy a bad property, the risk of you losing your capital is is the number one goal. You don't want you don't want that to happen. And the only way you can you can ensure that that doesn't happen is to buy something for less than it's worth, to buy an asset for less than its value, and that that discount that margin of safety is protection against the uncertainty, the unknowable nature of the future. It's a protection against your own ignorance. And this this idea of um, price and value, discount to price and value, has some kind of counterintuitive implications. It means that um, a high-quality property can actually be a bad investment and a low-quality property can actually be a safe investment. It all depends on the price you pay. Price is what you pay, but value is what you get. And I think most people think too much about um, the price and not enough about trying to value the asset, the home or the, the property that they're buying. And I think this gets compounded by things like property appraisers and property valuers who are essentially giving you um, the price of your asset, even though they say it's the value. It's, it's, um, 
yeah, it's not it's not a deeper understanding of the potential earnings or cash flows that um, the property can spin off. And I might just wrap this all up by giving a small little example. This is turning into a bit of a long monologue, so <laughs> I'll just wind it up here. But <laughs> that, thanks, the, uh, listeners. That's all we have time yeah. for. This I think a good example I can give is uh, if you think of like the the odds you'd get on a sporting event. So you, if you take the AFL Grand Final from a um, couple of months ago, West Coast v Collingwood, the odds of um, that the bookies offer um, for each team's chance of winning is kind of like the price of the the price of an asset. The asset here being the payoff from getting the um, the bet right. And say if I think West Coast were paying two dollars twenty or something on Grand Final day, and and Collingwood were paying a dollar twenty. So you might have come along and gone, oh, well, based on my knowledge of you know the history of grand finals and the quality of the players and um, the weather on the day and all these and you know your ex- your expectations about the coaches' tactics and potential injuries and all these different things, you might have said, well, actually, I don't think those odds accurately reflect the chances of each side winning. You might say, oh, I think West Coast actually have a fifty-fifty chance rather than um, being outside. Um, being outsiders to the event, and that that is essentially your assessment of the value of that of that um, of that economic situation, and that disparity between price and value is what might give you a, di- a margin of safety, some protection, and actually make an intelligent investment. Um, yeah. So there's lots of lots of interesting points there, and um, this uh, this divergence between price and value is uh, is really interesting, and the as the idea of uh, of a bubble, and this can be in in all types of uh, asset markets. And uh, there's a, there's an, another interesting point which you made, which is about the the price is very easily observable. That's the the price tag that we see on the the house what it sells for. But there's that that difficulty in knowing what the the real value of it is, and it's open to this kind of debate and um, about potential scenarios. And this makes it actually difficult to know whether a bubble is actually in place or, or occurring. And so, um, you know, as we go through the, the episode, we'll talk a bit more about um, uh, signs that there, there might be a bubble or not. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's kind of what makes investing such a challenge because when you have all these different people analysing whether it's a stock or a property or a bond, they, because of all the efforts of these individuals, they, they end up getting the, the price converges towards value over time. There's a saying that in the short run, the market is a, a voting machine, but in the long run, it's a weighing machine. And um, a couple of Nobel laureates um, from a few years ago, uh, Eugene Farmer and um, uh, what's his name? Robert Schiller, I think, I think that's his name. They won they won Nobel Prizes for pointing out that the market is both efficient in the long term but inefficient in the short term. And it's a function of the fact that, like I was saying, um, people are irrational and get emotional, but over the long term, the, we end up making sense of the information before us and prices converge towards value. Yeah, I think that emotion part's interesting too. And one of the sayings that you mentioned, Jordan, at the start, you know, the bird, bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. But it just got me thinking about value you know now the premium you place on things now versus in the future and um you know obviously shelter is one of those just basic human needs that 
it's kind of like, well, you need a family under, you know, like under a roof or you need to be, actually live somewhere first before you can worry too much about what happens in the future. So that was just something that jumped out to me um, just as you were talking there about, you know, an example, I guess, of some of those emotions. But it's a real, it is the most basic need of human needs is shelter. And it's like, well, hence why you want to invest in it and hence why you want to do it as quick as you can. And most people price like the premium they do on it. Yeah. And when it comes to housing, you get a lot of, like you say, um, other considerations that come into play, whether it's shelter or um, cultural elements like, um, you know, it's widely seen as the Australian dream to own your own home and, you know, to mm. put down roots. And so, there's a, yeah, there's, mm. it's not just economic considerations, but the economic stuff is gives us a framework to figure out whether things uh, make sense or don't make sense at the moment. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, now, one of the things I noticed that you cover a lot of ground in the newsletter on is, or the analysis is about mortgages. So can you just explain just the how much they've actually changed? And, you know, before it was around questions of character. And so, but now it's sort of a mix of heavy incentives for giving out loans loaded with terms like commission fees and trail fees. Can you just explain the journey of the mortgage? Because that's interesting. Um, I think for a lot of listeners. Yeah, well, as you as you're pointing out, like it, the corollary of buying a home is usually taking on debt to buy it, and so the the Australian mortgage is a fixture of um, the property market and the broader financial markets. The I think the total uh, number of mortgages outstanding in Australia is about 1.7 trillion, and that's a huge figure. I mean, it doesn't it's so big it's yeah. kind of hard to get around. Um, I think the total market value of all Australian listed companies is only two trillion dollars. So it's it's truly it's truly monstrous. Um, but yeah. yeah, as you allude to, there's Please. been um, there's been some changes in the way mortgages have been issued um, over the last couple of decades, and even longer term, there's been changes in the way banks uh, banks operate, which has affected the way uh, we get mortgages. So I might start with. Um, I might start with the idea of how banking has changed in a broad sense. So we we think today of when we think of banks, we think of the big four: uh, NAB, CBA, Westpac, ANZ, and they the way they make loans today is what I would describe as like the robo banking model. It's there's a lot of automation, um, there's a lot of um, it's like a portfolio mentality of how they issue loans, and it's a way for them to. Um, achieve massive scale in a way. It's why most people can access access a mortgage. But this this type of model hasn't been around uh forever. Back in the old days it was it was much um you know banking was much a much smaller phenomenon and it was much more relationship based. So um in the essay I quote uh JP Morgan, the famous financier, who said that um yeah the the first the first thing was character. If it wasn't for character he couldn't he wouldn't lend to anyone. And um, I, I, that really struck out to me when I read it a couple of years ago because I couldn't imagine walking into a, one of the big four banks today and asking for a loan and them turning around and saying, I'm sorry, sir, but we do not think you're of sound character. I mean, that's just, <laughs> that, that's just yeah. not how things play out today. Um, and part of the reason is that that relationship banking model um, it was based a lot on trust and, um, you know, people were in the same community, so they knew who they were. And, um, yeah, and it, it reminds me a lot too of... 
it reminds me a lot too of um, just how you know you hear about how people used to get their license back in the day, as they say. You know, you'd you'd take the police sergeant for a trip around the block to go down to the bakery, and then drive him back, and then. You know, if it was if you did a good job, then it was kind of like, all right, well, yeah, you've got your license, son. Well done. But yeah, you're right. Community focused, little smaller relationships, all those sorts of things. Like, but you can see obviously the broad brushstrokes yeah, of that not, with lending too. Yeah. Yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah. But yeah. It is, it is, yeah. I get a bit nostalgic for that type of stuff as well. But um, yeah, I mean that's the banks. If you if that was how we operated, the there wouldn't be as much the access to finance wouldn't be as great as it is today. So there's a yeah, like everything, there's trade offs. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, alongside this this shift towards uh, more automated lending practices and and larger banks um, has been the trend towards mortgage brokers over the last ten fifteen years. And yeah, mortgage. The mortgage broker has essentially been a way for the banks to outsource the verification and sale of home loans. Um, I think they only constituted, say, 5 to 10% of new loans back in the 90s, and today they're closer to 50%. And the reason is that it's been a way for banks to turn uh, what was traditionally a fixed cost into a variable cost. So in the old days, they would, you know, in order to get a loan, you have to go into a branch, and so a bank would have to have, like, the fixed you know, leasing costs and staff members and workers' compensation and all that type of stuff. So it was much more expensive to get the incremental loan. Without with the with the mortgage broker, they um, they no longer need to have the fixed setup costs costs of branches, and they just pay a variable cost for each mortgage that goes through that broker. And this might come as a surprise for people, but that's. That's, exa- that's exactly how mortgage brokers are paid. They're paid by banks, and so they work for banks. I think one of the most common mis- misnomers is that a mortgage broker is essentially working for the borrower. I mean, we call up, you know, people will go in and visit a borrower, and I mean, go in and visit a broker and think that they're there shopping around to get the lowest interest rate for them. But in the end, they're, um, they're getting paid by the banks, so the incentives set by the banks kind of determine the loan that you get. And there is a couple of key incentives which drive this this supply chain. One is um, the upfront commission, and the second is the trail commission, as you mentioned, Sean. And the the upfront commission is essentially just a small percentage of the total uh, amount of the loan when it's issued, the total mortgage. And then the trail fee is a, a small fee that's paid um, over the life of the loan based on the amount that's still outstanding. And that might sound pretty harmless, but what that means is that a mortgage broker actually has an incentive to get any borrower to take out as big a loan as possible and for it to be outstanding as long as possible. And that kind of explains the rise of something called interest-only loans, which is a type of mortgage where people don't pay back the actual principal of the loan for a a few years, usually around five years, um, and only only service the interest on the debt, and then they end up paying uh, more from for the remainder of the loan after the interest-only period expires. And that type of loan is commonly seen as a riskier type of loan because there's a huge uptick in payments after a number of years. And it's actually one of the loans, or it's a type of loan that caused a lot of issues in the global financial crisis 10 years ago. So these, and one other final element to this is that not only are mortgage brokers rewarded based on trail and upfront commissions, but commissions make up 100% 
of the money that they earn. And so if you were thinking that, oh, you know, maybe commissions aren't that important, it's, you know, if you earn all your salary, if you earn all your income based on commissions, then you would be shoveling mortgages out the door as well and as big as you possibly can as well. That's how you make your living. So overall, there's, yeah, to sum it all up, there's been two kind of real big changes, which is the the role of um, automated lending processes and the role of mortgage brokers and the role of their commissions in shaping the mortgage market in Australia. What sort of info is there out there, Jordan, about, you know, because obviously when you see or you, you know, when you hear about the incentives like that and that constant pressure to, you know, get commission and, as you say, shovel mortgages out the door, um, obviously there's a lot of instances in that case of people maybe getting loans who shouldn't be getting them in the sense that they default or don't pay them back. Do you have any idea of where things have fallen through the cracks or, you know, the scale of that problem in itself? Well, the the Royal Commission, which has been going on now for nearly a year, I think, um, that's been sort of gradually leaking information, showing some of the behaviour that's going on in the mortgage broking industry. There was a very interesting article last week in The Fin um, pointing out that um, the Royal Commission had just released a huge document dump, about 200 different documents from various lenders and mortgage brokers. And and these documents were uh, answers by all those institutions uh, to requests from the Royal Commission asking for evidence of misconduct and serious misconduct throughout the industry over the last um, few years. And the Royal Commission's had the answers for over a year, well, up to a year now, I think, but only released those documents last week. And mm. I've had a quick scan of a couple, but mainly just read the reporting on it. It seems like a couple of journalists spent the entire weekend going through these documents. But it kind of paints a picture that this the mortgage broking industry is like the Wild West. There's been like identity fraud, uh, links to criminal organizations, it's all sorts of all sorts of ridiculous behavior. And I think you can partly partly put it back to the fact that um, I was talking with my wife about this over the weekend. If you go into buy a pair of jeans or something in a in a store, you know, you've got a salesman there who's trying to convince you to buy, you know, the most expensive pair of jeans because they'll get a sales bonus or something. And, you know, they'll give you a whole bunch of information about the quality of the denim or where it's from or, you know, who's wearing it. You used it. to be one of those guys, Jordan. Yeah, I was one you? of those. <laughs> <laughs> I know all the dirty tricks. So authentic. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's like, you, you know, you're aware of the sales tactics that are being played on you. But when it comes to a mortgage, um, people don't realize that the mortgage broker or the, the bank the bank staff member is the same the same person. They're they're there trying to make a sale, and they're incentivized to get you to take on a certain product. In the end, you're there to do your homework to figure out whether you need you know a cheap pair of jeans or an expensive pair of jeans, a skinny pair or you know boot cut whatever. It's, it's <laughs> you're there to do you're there to do your homework. You're not there to take advice. They're not there to give advice, and I think that's part of the problem. Everyone thinks that these these brokers and bankers are there to give them advice and in the end they're just um, they're able to get people to take on more loans than they need and it also means that the system is susceptible to gaming. Yeah, it's just um, I think understanding these incentives that are, um, are behind the act, different actors in the in the housing market is is really um, is really crucial to uh, teasing out some of these dynamics. So um, so you've done a you've done a great job of, of that, Jordan. Just um, to add some of uh, another another point on just 
stepping back on broader trends in the the Australian economy is that uh, yes, there's been this big increase in in mortgages and um, Australian households are, are now much more indebted. So this is the the borrowing being being a lot higher to um, to finance these um, purchases of houses. And in addition to that, there's the share of banks' balance sheets. So the amount of overall lending that banks have done, there's been a, a big increase. Uh, over the past um, past couple of decades in the share of housing lending. So banks are now more exposed to um, to mortgages and, and house prices um, relative to you know other lending that they do like to to businesses. Yeah, that's and that's a really good point. And that's it's important to recognise that because that's Australia is quite unusual in that in that regard. So I think the um, I think Commonwealth and Westpac have nearly 60% of their their asset base, their loan portfolio in in residential mortgages across Australia and New Zealand. That's unheard of in banks across the world. So our our institutions are much more heavily uh, levered in a way or focused on, sorry, exposed is probably the best word, much more exposed to the Australian property market than others. Yeah, and I think that's a, that's a really important point to um, to focus in on because. Uh, in the in the the U.S. housing market, the downturn in in U.S. house prices and uh, U.S. banks and and other banks around the world being exposed at um, that fall in house prices, and you know a big reason why why Australian banks you know avoided that is that they're in the Australian property market um, or a, a sharp fall in in house prices. So understanding those there are these risks out there to uh, to Australian banks at a high level of of uh, mortgages which are, are outstanding on their bank on their balance sheets. Yeah, and there's there's a couple of other elements. It's in, I, I like the idea of drawing analogies and looking at the history, especially around the US, um, because that was you know that was obviously a very clear property bubble that had huge consequences. So learning from history is always important, and trying to see the differences and the and the similarities between Australia and the US is I found very instructive. And one difference. Um, which I'm not quite sure what impact that has is that in in the US a lot of a lot of mortgages you have the ability to walk away from the loan. So if you're if you took out a took out a loan and um, the value of the house ended up falling to a, a level where the debt outstanding was more than the value of the property, you could what's called foreclose on the home. You walk away, you send the keys back to the bank, and it's the bank's problem. It became known as jingle mail because so many people were doing it, and that. These are um, that actually isn't possible in Australia. You're not allowed to walk away from the loan if you default on your mortgage, or you have a set that situation where you've got negative equity in your home. The um, the banks actually can still chase you up for it unless you file for personal bankruptcy. So that's that's a different dynamic, which I think has made the Australian banks much more content to lend to people who might not be able to pay back because they think that um, they'd be able to recoup the losses on other assets. But then there's also things where um, you would have heard of maybe lenders' mortgage insurance, which is where if you want to borrow more than 80% of the value of a property, the bank gets you to take out mortgage, not for you, but for the bank. And so these insurers will actually end up collecting on you in the in the event that you default on your loan. Can you just talk quickly, Shopo, about one of your, like that uh, instance where you went into a bank and... Um I think you probably knew more than the person that was serving you because I think that's an interesting dynamic going on as well that whilst um, there's that appetite or that hunger to hand out um, 
mortgages or you know loan just loan people money more generally when I guess that the sort of technical knowledge might not be there for the person doing the I thought that was just an interesting sort of offside instance. Yeah, I think I've ruined this poor lady's day. She um yeah <laughs> I, I was inviting him for my financial health check and they um the health check involved them trying to get me on all sorts of loans, whether it was a car loan or a, a housing loan or credit card loan. Um, yeah, so it's not just housing. There's obviously like, you know, it extends to all other sort of areas and yeah. Yeah, yeah and it's nothing against this lady. That's just her job. Mm-hmm. And so but the mm-hmm. point is like, you know, we get bombarded with advertisements all the time. Um, mm-hmm. I think yeah. people just need to be more wary of what, you know, the consequences of taking on taking on those types of debts. Yeah. So I think that's that yeah. sort of cultural element coming into it as well on the side of, you know, honouring debt and whether, you know, we talked a little bit about questions of character before, but I think those are sort of old school examples of things that might have just kind of fallen out of vogue a little bit about that sort of human element about what's your capacity to service it. And I think when you sort of start to talk about questions like values and things like that, they become much more difficult than to talk about now more so than at any other time previously. Um, I think just housing just kind of becomes this very rational economic discussion um, versus, yeah, those questions of values and character, I think. Yeah, and one, one value is frugality and thrift. And, mm. you know, when I think because Australia has had such a, a long period of prosperity, um, you know, nearly 30 years since our last recession, I think you can build, build up an element of complacency as a society and that's mm. might be one aspect of why people have become more open to taking on large amounts of debt. They haven't. Many people haven't mm. experienced a like a recession, the the associated credit crunch or mm. anything like. I mean, talking to my in-laws who remember the the last recession in the early nineties quite fondly, <laughs> well not fondly, but like no. they vividly. I mean, um, yeah. <laughs> They they have a different perspective on the role of debt and the risks you take on in in those types of transactions. So, yeah, it's mm. again, like you said, importance of values and understanding history. And so this all kind of looks like. And as you write, I'll just quote directly here: that Australia has a property bubble. No two ways about it. Exorbitant prices fueled by a surge in mortgages, as we've covered, warped incentives and a deterioration in lending. Standards, so it's sort of like the perfect storm. Which one of these elements of the ones you list there do you think is the easiest one to fix? Well, I think in order to give an, give a sense of what I think could be changed, I first need to outline what I believe are the key drivers of the bubble. And um, I'm not going to be able to do a good enough job just here. That's why I make a little plug. Better off people go read the essay. But um, to, uh, <laughs> we'll put it in the that, notes. Yeah. To um. I mean, that, that term bubble does get thrown around too much. And so I'm very conscious of really laying the case in a lot of detail. And to give, a, to give an explanation for people what I actually think a bubble is, it's, it's kind of, it's a, it's a sort of collective madness. It's something that everyone believes to be true, which turns out not to be. And the, um, the example, the story I like to give, and I give it in the essay, is, is um, of a press conference given by Donald Rumsfeld during the Iraq, Iraq war years, um, he, in answer to a question, I can't remember what it was, he said, he said something like there are, there are, th- there are known knowns, 
there are known unknowns and there are unknown unknowns. That is to say, there are things we know we know, there are things we know we don't know, and there are things we don't know we don't know. And although that, that press conference went down in history as kind of borderline crazy, I actually think it's a really useful rubric for thinking about problems for knowledge and also for bubbles. And the, the element where bubbles come in is actually one combination of knowns and unknowns that isn't there, and it's the unknown known. And it's the, like I was saying, these things that we all think we know that turn out not to be true. The madness of crowds, the collective delusions, the speculative manias, things like um, you know cryptocurrencies in 2017 or the um, subprime mortgages in the US in 2007, 2008, or the, uh, the dot-com mania in the late 90s. It's these, these yeah. sort of mass herd mentalities which get out of control. And they're usually you know, much easier to identify in hindsight. But the point is that the greater the irrationality among the people involved, the greater the mispricing and the larger the bubble. So in order to pinpoint the bubble in Australian property, you have to pinpoint the key irrationalities that are going on. And for me, there's, there's, there's two. There's one on the demand side and there's one on the supply side. The demand side one is to do with negative gearing. Negative I mean, every, every man and his dog has heard of negative gearing and every second man and his dog is probably using it. And the, the, the Labor government has, uh, sorry, the Labor opposition has said that if they get into government, they will change the negative gearing laws. So it's obviously a very sensitive issue. But rather than go into the mechanics of, mechanics of how it works and really bore people, the, the point is <laughs> negative gearing is, is a tax minimization strategy, not an investment scheme. And, but instead, most people, a lot of property investors have taken the, the taxation advice of their accountants and treat it as a, as a wealth management solution. So there's a saying that to every man with a hammer, every problem looks like every problem looks like a nail. And accounts are similar. It's the the problem of specialists. If you give them um, if you give them a problem, they'll look at it through the prism of taxation, and that is what they they have done with people's capital. So negative gearing only works if property prices keep going up. And that is that is no guarantee. The scheme works as property prices keep going up. But if that was to change, then the losses that people are using from their investment properties to offset their personal tax liabilities um, ends up becoming a much bigger problem. In the end, a loss is still a loss, but people have been feeling richer because they use the, the economic losses on a property to pay less tax. Um, it has some perverse consequences. It essentially means that we're subsidizing high income earners and encouraging them to take on more debt and um, speculate on price gains. But that is one really you know, crazy irrationality that's going on the demand side. On the supply side, it has to do with the... Um, just quickly on that, Jordan, on the sure. negative gearing front, um, can you sort of see, I mean, what is the, what is the basis for the idea of it? I mean, is there anything, and when I try to sort of unpack this, is... It does seem, though, it is an acknowledgement of an investment, like a you know, some taking a risk and investing in something um, that you do get some tax relief if it is, you know, if you're losing money on an investment. So, are there some sort of positive sides, like the rational reasons for having negative gearing in the first instance? Because it does get beat up a lot, but you don't really care, and you've just outlined some of the negative things for, about it. But are there any positives there that that you can see? The rationale behind it is that it encourages home ownership, and that's mm. that's a fair point. It has 
But the problem is it doesn't take into account whether or not people are paying the right amount for an asset. So it, it it's well-intentioned, but it goes too far in a way. And, I mean, Australia is the only other country in the world that actually allows it. Usually when you have um, a tax loss on an investment, you, you offset against other investment, whether it's another property asset or a um, you know shares or something like that. That's what some countries do. We're the only country that actually lets you offset against your personal salary income. So that, yeah, it's the incentive is going too far in a way. It's acting to inflate house prices and really um, pricing certain people out of the out of the, the housing market. So good summary then of negative gearing. I think Jordan that you put in whatever the merits of it and whatever the demerits of it is. And I like this what you've written is so the more you borrow, the more interest you claim, the greater the potential loss and the bigger the tax deduction. And I think that's just a really good explanation and certainly the best that I've read of it, of what is a complex issue, of which it appears that there's a lot more negatives than there are positives, at least from what's reflected in the discussion in the discussion here. Yeah, Great. and to get, to get back to your point, your original question, Sean, on that, it's like, how do you fix it? It is quite easy to fix, but the, the, the hard bit is the politics of it. And, I mean, we know that so many people are using negative gearing, I think it's close to oh, – I can't remember the exact thing. I think it was close to 2 million, 2 million property investors in Australia and 600,000 of them are negatively geared, maybe even more. So and then you know politicians are doing it as well. So there's a, there's a huge vested interest in keeping the system going as it is. And I think it highlights one of the issues with um, tax policy. I remember hearing Peter Costello, Peter Costello say back in the day that tax reform is like playing whack-a-mole. He's like if you press down one end – and you don't, you know, you just do it in isolation, it's going to pop up somewhere else. And tax reform has to be broad-based because people can, you know, switch between different mechanisms and systems. And it, yeah, it's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of risk that your, that isolated reforms actually cause more problems than they solve. So I think, yeah, negative gearing, if that, if it does get changed, has to be looked at in a much broader context. There was one other thing I was going to say, just on the supply side of the bubble, if you, want me to go on with that the um i mean you yeah so that's one way of fixing the bubble is to change the look at the incentives on the demand side but the other the other aspect on the supply side has to do with the actual banks and their lending standards um one of the things that's come out of the royal commission is that the banks have focused on a specific benchmark to assess whether or not people should be able to take on a loan and you know assessing their serviceability of, of that loan. It's called the, the household expenditure measure or the household expenditure benchmark. And it's it's essentially a a default conservative means of assessing a, a borrower's, a potential borrower's um, expenses. So all the banks learnt the lesson of the GFC, which was that you should check a borrower's income. Most of um most of the people who caused issues in the GFC were um, you know, it was called no income, no jobs, no assets. It was these people that couldn't even, you know, didn't have any money and didn't have any job and they were still able to borrow a loan. So Australia doesn't have that problem. We, it's, the, the property market has mainly been a, uh, a high net worth phenomenon. A lot of people with um, higher incomes are actually the ones who take out not only uh, loans to buy their own home, but to buy investment property loans. Um, so, yeah, the banks are quite good at checking um, checking your pay slips and checking you actually have a job. But then what they don't do is check your actual expenses. They use this benchmark figure. 
And that benchmark figure is actually a very conservative estimate of an average household's expenses. They take what's known as the 25th percentile of discretionary costs across the population and then the 50th percentile of your um, average um, basic costs. And the big, the big news bomb that came out of the Royal Commission was that there were some audits um, that were done by the, um, by the regulators to check how often the banks were using this benchmark. And it showed that most borrowers were claiming that their expenses were below that benchmark. And if you think back to those percentiles I gave, it means that 50% of people should be above that basic cost figure and 75% above the discretionary costs. So how can 80% of people be in the bottom 20%, so to speak? There was people essentially gaming the system, saying that their expenses were lower than what this benchmark was was saying. So it means that underwriting standards actually were really, really lax for about you know 2013 to 2018 when uh, the banks started changing it. And so that would obviously be a remedy to try and look at to, I guess, that's something that probably the Royal Commission will definitely look at, but looking at other solutions and things like that, that looks like something that really just deserves tightening up in itself. Yeah, and I've heard, my my brother told me yesterday, he, he was at a, a barbecue and he met someone who wanks, works for Bank West in their mortgage department, and he was saying that, he was telling him that, yeah, they've already started tidying up on this expenses side of things and actually checking people's expenses. So the banks are already starting to act to, yeah, they recognise that the Royal Commission is going to come down hard on it and it's been quite controversial. And, yeah, in order to really check whether or not a, a potential borrower is going to be able to repay their loan, you need to have not only an idea of what the income is but also the expenses. They, I mean, they haven't done it in the past because it's much, much harder to check, you know, what people are going to spend their money on. Like, you, you know... You, that changes from from week to week for most people. So, um, yeah, tightening up around that is already having an impact, and it's yeah, it's making waves and doesn't necessarily need to come from the regulatory standpoint. It can be done from banks on their own terms. I was just going to ask uh, Jordan because we're on this topic of um, the impact of, of regulation or um, banks taking actions themselves. And given uh, we're in this, um, you know, if there is a if there is a property bubble, then how should actors in the financial system respond? So the thinking about our regulators or, or the banks themselves or um, you know, the housing, in, housing investors, households? Yeah, that's a really, really hard question. <laughs> um, I, the, yeah, I, and I, that's exactly what regulators are trying to deal with at the moment. I think, as we were saying before, like bubbles are much easier to identify in hindsight because they have this sort of collective... Um, delusion about them. So most of the people who have the capacity to change them uh, usually are involved in them. So the one aspect that um, regulators could, or one lever that they could pull, is interest rates. So there's a there's a fair case out there that um, part of the reason the bubble has gotten as big as it has is because interest rates have come down over the past few years, and that means the ability for people to borrow has gone up. They can take on a bigger loan. They can service a bigger mortgage. And so that is encourage people to enter the market. Most, most people, the way they assess whether or not to rent or buy a home is based on the relative cost of servicing a mortgage versus what their lease cost would be. So if you can take out a $500,000 loan at a 3% interest rate rather than a 5% interest rate, the, you know, the attractiveness of buying a home goes up. And 
that's yeah that's been a big driver over the past yeah past few years so the the question on the reserve bank side of things is do we do we raise interest rates to um kind of slow slow loan growth um reduce people's ability to to take on more debt reduce people's ability to buy houses but these things usually have unintended consequences and um yeah uh, it's kind of the damage has already been done in a way it's like people have already overextended themselves it's um a lot of these measures are kind of too little or too late what really in my mind should needs to happen is these things can't blow up in the first place sorry you know the bubbles can't can't arise in the first place so it's ideally for me you want a system that doesn't rely on the regulators to come in and uh, stop these things later on but that that is a question that I mean I don't think anyone's really come up with a, a proper solution to that I mean the the US experience showed that um, you know we're still living in the in the wake of that financial crisis and we still don't know how to you know how to avoid bubbles and or how to stop them or how to prick them without you know a disaster do you think rates would changing rates would do anything, Jordan? Like, what's your and even Will? I'd love to get hear your views on that um, because I think you know in a previous discussion we've had on this, you know, Alan Greenspan. I remember writing about you know how he got put under a lot of pressure or copped a lot of criticism for um, you know not doing enough to slow this bubble by you know by keeping rates terribly low. Um, yeah, what are your thoughts there, gents? Because I think that's just an interesting um, discussion. Yeah, um, and interest rates are. I think Warren Buffett said that interest rates are like gravity; they affect the they affect the price of every asset. And it goes back to the the value equation I talked about earlier, where we were saying that the value of any asset is the the sum the discounted sum of future cash flows, and that the discounting side of it, you know, the bird in the hand worth is two in the bush. That that the your time preferences for a dollar today over a dollar tomorrow come down to the rate of interest, and so if interest rates you know go down or up, it changes the value of an asset. And whether yeah, so if the RBA was to start changing rates, I think that would have dramatic effects. But I think these these things are impossible to forecast. You don't know the calculus that is going on in the regulator's mind, and Australia is not only um, I mean, interest rates are not only determined by the RBA, but they're also determined by global capital flows. So one of the things I talk about at the very end of the essay is some of the gyrations going on in global capital, capital markets at the moment, which is associated with the, the Federal Reserve, the US Central Bank, raising interest rates and um, that causing capital to flood back to the United States. So that that the way that flows through is that... Australian banks uh, borrow a lot of money from overseas capital markets, and if um, the and if they have to borrow from the US where rates are higher, then it's going to cost them more, and that's going to flow through to higher uh, borrowing costs for 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 borrowers. So there's there's many elements of play, but yeah, I think it's a, you can say um, pretty matter of fact that rising interest rates does would cause problems for borrowers. Yeah, that's that's right, and because um, just because uh, Australian households, you know, most of them uh, have bo- variable rate mortgages. So raising interest rates increases your uh, monthly repayments on your loan, which makes it um, to um, to meet those payments. Thinking about what the reserve mandate isn't actually around um, 
uh, around house prices or thinking about asset prices. It's um, we know what its objectives are. Uh, it's uh, low and stable inflation, full employment, and growth. So it it has to balance these three competing uh, objectives in setting interest rates. So that's what they're trying to to target. And so that's a this is a challenging task. And obviously, hmm. you know, the stability in the housing market matters for those things. So that's how they're they're sort of assessing that. Um, I think the um, Sean, what you said about um, the U.S. housing and um, rates being very low for a period ahead of the financial crisis and that they were raised too late in the cycle is an instructive example. Um, and you know, there are risks in Australia that you know, rates at the moment are uh, at unprecedentedly low and that if they're kept too low for too long, then that risks um, inflating housing prices there is a, a correction which will, which would hurt growth in the long but of course you know as you're raising rates that does um that does reduce asset prices and and contain um contain growth so it's a really it's a really difficult task and so um you know i think there is a you know they're they're doing it at the moment you know it's um okay but there are these risks about australian rates being too low for too long uh particularly if there is a downturn in the Australian economy. We need we need space to be able to reduce rates. Um, and on the who looks after um, the housing specifically, uh, and APRA has the the specific mandate for financial stability in Australia. So, uh, and they they're responsible for things like uh, minimum lending standards, you know, and that sort of side. And there's been a lot of action in this space in the in the past few years. And obviously, the Reserve Bank kind of works with them on this and there's been a lot of talk publicly by the Reserve Bank and around the risks of um, you know of the the Australian housing market and these type of risky loans so they, there's there's you know work to be done in that space and and finally from from ASIC in just oversight of the banks and, and there aren't these you know systemic risks out there that um, that need to be addressed so that, that's I think some of the the issues around the, the Australian housing market and um, yeah uh, be happy to hear what you guys think to uh, any of that. Well, one of the interesting points I think Will is exactly right. Like with households, and if you're, you know, if raising rates would have, you know, if there's, if you don't have much savings or your consumption, you know, you're heavy on consumption already of lots of, you know, like you, know, you think about groceries, other repayments, those sorts of things, school fees, etc. That yeah, there's that capacity, and some of the analysis I've read is that. Yeah, raising rates would really damage a lot of houses um, in terms of, you know, really being exposed to rate increases would really pinch the uh, the wallet. Yeah, and I think that's that's an, an important thing for people taking out taking on debt now is that in ending that interest rates are unprecedentedly low, and this is this is going on around the world at the moment. We're in a we're in a kind of strange period where uh, interest rates on on many assets are really low, and that. Um, prices are really high, so you know, understanding that you know if you've got if you've got a uh, 15, 20 year loan that you're likely to face much higher rates at, at some point. Um, yeah, mm. so I think that's that's a that's an important thing, and uh, and understanding these international linkages, like um, like Jordan said, um, just prices in you know Sydney and Melbourne, which are the the main markets where people have been really concerned. They've they've um, 
come down slightly over the past year. And so we've there is there are signs that maybe we've maybe the the housing market has peaked, and it's really but it's really hard to tell. Um, mm. But there has been some has been some downturn over the past year. So I mean maybe these actions uh, by the by the regulators and APRA is starting to sort of ease the bump, deflate it a bit. But this is a really tricky thing to do without it mm. bursting. Uh, it's it's a really um, a really tough job that they've got. Yeah, and mm. you're kind of alluding to there, like you don't you don't know where prices are going to go. Prices have come off a little bit, and it's you know everyone's talking about it. It hasn't even come off that much when you put it in context of yeah. the past five, ten, twenty years. So it's a bit of a scary thought that people are getting that panicky already. But I mean, the point of pointing out um, that in, in my essay that I think there's a bubble is not to say that it's going to explode tomorrow. I start the essay with a story about a guy predicting the collapse of Australia's property bubble in 2008, and then it proceeding to double on him. So there's there's a mm-hmm. you know there's a saying that there are two kinds of forecasters: those who don't know and those who don't know they don't know. So you've we've got to be careful mm-hmm. not to focus too much on what's happening in the prices and focus more on yeah get back to understanding value. And one mm-hmm. one aspect just of uh, what you can do, though, is think about the risks, the near-term risks. And the big risk, in my mind, over the next couple of years, um, without trying to predict things, is um, the rollover of a lot of interest-only loans that were issued in 2014 and 2015. So with the tightening of lending standards that have been going on, um, a lot of the loans that were issued back then um, won't be able to refinance. A lot of people, I think, expected that they could take out an interest-only loan and then when they had to start paying back principal, they could refinance and get another interest-only period. That is much harder today. And there is going to be, I think there's something about $360 billion worth of interest-only loans that are going to roll over the next two years. So that's, I mean, how, how that plays out is going to be very, very interesting to watch. Yeah, it will be. And I think um, it's worth, I mean, this is, uh, you know, you were saying, um, you know, people need to sort of forget about the, the short term price gyrations. But when when you when you're um, people in the market who are used to prices continuing to increase. And this is kind of what you're alluding to about um, the problem of how these can inflate in the first place. I think, um, you know, shattering that illusion that prices can only go one way is really is really important. And, um, you know, that these these sort of developments maybe maybe help to um, for people to see that and then you know reassess the um, yeah the, the future expectations that they have for the yeah. house price going yeah. forward. Yeah, for sure. And I think like it just sort of seems that it really does come back as well to just sort of solid fundamentals. You know, like do your due diligence. Um, don't bite off more than you can chew. There's no such thing as a free lunch. All these sorts of things like really are timeless in terms of trying to navigate the complexity around this. And, um, you know, um, yeah, look, and I just think that it just always comes back to just decent fundamentals. And I don't know if that's a, a sort of regulatory principle to keep in mind or um, I think but it's just probably just something worthwhile to think about um, as well. And, you know, like, I think you're right, like, Will, there's that expectation, and Jordan alluded to it as well, about, you know, that people just sort of look at property to think that it will go up over time and it will only go one way. 
and I think that paired with the fact that you know that stat you mentioned it we've had the longest run um, of continual economic growth I think in history now I think we've if I don't know if that's but certainly like um, this unparalleled period of prosperity could have obviously well you know in some senses driven a sense of complacency that things will only go one way and that's up and um, yeah so I just kind of think that all of this can maybe come back to somehow principles yeah and um, another another point which I just wanted to make about uh, a lot of the the discussion about house prices is is you know complaining about how high they are but of course if you're an it, but of course, and so you know, there's this you know people wanting you know uh, lower house prices for sort of for them. But once they're an owner, then you know they're of course in favour of higher for their own home. Mm. Seems like a bit of yeah. a, a bit of a disconnect. And uh, yeah, um, have no, you look, that's you need what, it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, that's a good point. Like, and you've put it much better than how I was going to try and um, articulate it. But exactly right. Like, and I think that's one of the things that. You know, John Howard mentioned that when he, you know, was asked about, well, what are you doing about this problem? Like, it's not something that he gets approached, like, by, you know, someone who owns a home who has obviously a vested interest in seeing the value of that property or the price of that property increase over time doesn't have an interest, obviously, in making the value of that property decrease. So it's kind of like, you're right, Will, like, once you own a home, it's kind of like, it's all all systems go. You don't really have a stake in trying to um, compress any speculation or anything that's going to drive the price up. But yeah, you're right. There's a whole bunch of people on the other side who are, I think, you know, of our generation, who just become increasingly priced out of the market. Like it's just, you know, astronomical some of these house prices. Um, and then yeah, it's it's so there's the two sides to it. But yeah, once you sort of purchase, you enter through a door, and then you kind of you flip around and look at things from the other perspective. Just to pick up on your point earlier, Sean, about uh, values and responsibility and that type of thing. One, a couple of things I've noticed more recently is um, like 60-minute episodes in a current affair interviewing these people who've um, defaulted on their loans and, um, you know, talking about the story of, you know, what they what they borrowed and what they were buying and, you know, kind of is a lot of it is like a, a hardship story about look where these people are now. And there was a couple I saw where at the end of it, the, the borrowers turned around and go, oh, if you, if you look at the numbers, then, yeah, the banks were definitely irresponsible lending to us. And you can't help but think, well, if you could see that, why did you borrow mm -hmm. there in the first place? And I think there's got to be a point where people take responsibility for the debt that they take on. I mean, sure, there's there's an element of like banks need to be mm -hmm. prudent in their lending standards, but people also need to take a responsibility for their debts. and. I was kind of wondering if you two had any thoughts on when it comes to things like mortgage brokers and lenders, how much how much responsibility do you think needs to be put on the borrowers themselves to make responsible decisions or how much needs to be put on the you know, by the regulators on mortgage brokers, on bankers and, and putting the obligation on them to lend prudently and responsibly? I mean, how do you how do you think we get this balance right and how do you think the Royal Commission is gonna or how do you think the Royal Commission should look at that? Yeah, look, it's a good question, and I'll just dive in here quickly, Will. I think sort of in my my perspective is that what what I was fearful about the Royal Commission in the first instance and, you know, was just I, I think that it was going to just be a way to beat up, I think, banks or lenders um, and 
and, and in that case, take away that element of responsibility for individuals to do to be prudent to do their due diligence all those sorts of things because you're right like that episode of 60 minutes is exactly right about you know where's the personal responsibility in all of this um, but look I, I don't like I think it sort of goes obviously both ways a little bit I think you know the Royal Commission will be very good in terms of like punishing that malfeasance, like dodgy practices, those, all those sorts of things, as they are. You know, Royal Commissions are very decent um, in, in that respect of ironing out problems. There's a lot of negatives to them as well, but it's tough, you know, we'll dive into that in another episode, I think. But um, I think, yeah, look, my focus is sort of always on the, response, the, uh, the individual, I think, and what responsibility that the individual has to take um, you know, versus the institution, um, because I think, you know, it just ties into a lot of, you know, even the theme of the podcast even is just improving oneself and self better. It, regardless of what's going on in the landscape, um, you have to be vigilant and wise and get better and the emphasis is on you. And that doesn't mean to say that you should be exploited and, and taken advantage of, no way. But I, I do see, um, you know, on the ledger, um, people again coming back to the, those ideas of due diligence, not biting off more than you can chew, recognizing there's no such thing as a free lunch, and making sure that um, yeah, that if you are taking on something, that you do have the capacity to service it. But yeah, look, I mean, at the same time, I think that you know lenders obviously have to be responsible, and whatever falls out of the Royal Commission, you'd want it to be. I hope not just you know. Sarbanes Oxley type, you know, pages and reams of regulation, which is going to actually make things, you know, warp the incentives even more. So that just those same principles, I think, would apply to, you know, just looking at ways that we can make lending practices better, stop, you know, um, iron out any dodgy dealings, but at the same time, not create a whole regulatory regime that just becomes more complex and benefits, um, I guess, the lenders themselves. Um, that's got to be the focus, of course, as well. Will, you probably got some some great ideas yourself. Yeah, I think um, part of this is is maybe what um, what Jordan you were talking about earlier about uh, understanding the um, the incentives of differences in the the financial market, and you know, for people to realise that the the mortgage brokers are doing a job and earning commission on selling mortgages, and the you know that that that's their um their modus operandi, and that uh, that they need to to understand their this this transaction for themselves. So obviously you want to avoid any kind of um uh people people being deceived or um so so that they really understand the terms of the the loan which they're taking out, and you know obviously people have a Responsibility to to take that initiative themselves. I think you know there there needs to be um, needs to be able to be made clear for people. These are con complex uh, transactions, and and having it made plain for people rather than being buried in some uh, long contract, I think is also something that that uh, that is really important. That um, making these things accessible for um, for lenders. So I'm not sure if there's um, uh, of the specific details if they're of what that space, but I think making those sort of things transparent for people is uh, is important. Um, but then, as you've as you've been saying, you know, understanding the the term loan which they're taking on, and I think um, doing this 
um, this kind of red teaming in thinking about interest rates down the track. And, uh, you know, if they go to um, some certain level, then what's that mean for my payments? And, you know, um, if there's, uh, which happens to my, um, you know, my income stream, my job, then does that mean, am I going to be able to make my repayments? So, um, yeah, I, I guess that's what, that's what I'd sort of say around those. those yeah, mm. I, I think you both got, um, good points there. Like Will, you saying about like the transparency of information, so that people are aware and understand the obligations that they're taking on. And I think the Royal Commission has been focusing a lot on that. Like some of the confusing information that's out there. Like I think most people didn't realise that lenders' mortgage insurance is not for them; it's for the bank and things like that. Mm. And then, yeah, mm. Sean, like you're saying about you know you don't want to. I think the Royal Commission said this as well. I mean, there's a lot of regulatory standards out there already around responsible lending. So piling more on top of it isn't necessarily going to solve it because they're already not they're already not subscribing to those standards. So it's kind of like what are you, what are the alternatives? And I mean, one thing mm-hmm. I've thought about is usually in a business where if you make bad decisions, you you succumb to the realities of the market, which is you go bankrupt. If you uh you know if you're a mining company and you and you invest too much in uh, a new mine site which is uneconomic, you'll 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 uh, you'll perish. But in um, in banking, it seems to be that if you lend too much, you overinvest in in debt, um, whether it's to mortgages or something else, um, you seem to have the option of getting bailed out by the taxpayer. Well, that's what happened in the US. And yeah. I mean, that's part of the consequence of having banks that are so large. So there is this this trade off between what, you know, stability of the financial system and and having a competitive market where poor lenders Poor businesses go bankrupt. So, how you get that right? I, I still think, yeah, I don't think we've got that balance right, and still trying to figure it out. Yeah, yeah, real challenge in thinking about financial regulation. You know, banks are so important to the functioning of the economy. You know, people have we have our savings, uh, savings in banks, and um, they they have this important role in uh, adding finance and, and loans to people so that they can uh, run their business. And, and take out a home, so um, a mortgage to buy a home. So uh, there's this there's this important role which banks have, and if one was to to go bust, you know, there's there's obviously going to be a lot of pressure on governments to make good on people's savings which they have in their savings account. So I think you know, given that that's a that's the likely response to a bank uh, going bust, that there's a you know there's a, a strong case to be made. Um, uh, regulation of, of banks and ensuring that they have, um, you know, these kind of safety buffers, and uh, um, so that they, they withstand that. Given that there's this, um, you know, taxpayers' money potentially on the line if one was to go bust. Now, thinking about brokers, I'm, I guess, I'm not too sure about the the dynamics there in thinking about how policy should, um, you know, be be different or or um, or to to those. Um, those sort of dynamics, yeah. Maybe just just throw out a, a real, you know, curveball or out of left field one here. I mean, on this regular, you know, regulation versus competition question, um, I'd probably lean towards the more we need more competition side, and you know that means we need to have the idea that banks could fail. I think if you asked anyone, they would expect that you know one of the big four can never go bankrupt. The government will always be there, and I don't think that's healthy. I think that's part. I think that is a deep contributor to the stuff we've seen over the last 20 years and what's going on in the property market. But, you know, how you get to the stage where a bank can fail, um, yeah, I think you, it, 
it begins with the with the RBA with the with the Reserve Bank. I think rethinking the financial system in terms of the role of a central bank and what that means. I mean, this is this is you know no one talks about this stuff, but like that's what that's how I would go down because <laughs> there's a there's a case that maybe we shouldn't have a central bank and what the system would look like would be completely different. But maybe that's a topic mm. for another podcast. Yeah, fair that, enough. That will be a different system. And yes, I think, uh, <laughs> I mean, maybe talking, we could do um, do a future episode talking a bit about the all of the, the Reserve Bank in the Australian financial system. Um, yeah, I guess my, just briefly to, to comment on that, um, my, I, you know, I, See, you know, this this being a role, and it sounds, uh, oh, if if banks fail, then they should um, they shouldn't be bailed out. But um, you know, my my sense is that if that were to happen, then the, the government wouldn't be able, you know, hold that line. Um, if there were a crisis, that there would be significant pressure on because these are uh, people's savings in in their uh, in their bank account that have that have vanished. So. Um, given then, I think there's the the case some some oversight of banks. But the on the the competition side in the the financial sector, I think that's um that's also something you know an area which you know there could probably be more done in a, in a policy sense in um, encouraging greater competition because we do have you know the the Australian banking system dominated by these by the big four. For sure. And I think, yeah, look, exactly right. There would be huge political pressure to do, you know, something, uh, quote unquote, as as there is on governments now uh, at all levels. But, um, yeah, and I think whatever would be required, you would like to see at least some prudence or discipline and, you know, whatever is whatever uh, regulatory response is is done in the same way that you expect prudence from individuals, too. But, um, Gents, we've run long. I'm conscious of that. And um, but if there's any other things you just want to um, jump in and say, please do. But I'll, I will put a, a little note to the to um, Jordan's analysis, um, which is a great bit of writing and uh, very well done. Um, yeah, if I can just finish with one thing. Just thanks again, Sean, for giving me the opportunity to talk about my work. Really appreciate it. Um, and if there's one thing I can leave people with, it's to think about this idea of price and value a bit longer. I mean, mm. I think that, I mean, that's kind of the essence of investing. It's the crux of everything that goes on in financial markets, what professionals do. And if you can take the time to think about what is the true value of my house or a, an, mm. and my investment property or something like that, I think you'll be, mm. you'll be better for it and more likely to um, make better decisions and not lose your capital. Yeah, fair call. And um, I'm actually going to go down to the shops now because I need to buy some cheese for my sandwich for lunch. And I'm just going to try and work out the difference between the price and the value. So I'll be down there a while. <laughs> you get kicked out. <laughs> yeah, if I don't come back, I'm yeah, I'll blame you. Well, but, um, well the best value has got to be higher than the price or else you wouldn't buy it, right? Yeah, exactly. Just tastes so good. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, um, gentlemen, thanks so much. Um, Again, I'll put a link to the uh, to the um, the newsletter. Um, And so, uh, Will Witheridge from New York, uh, thanks for joining us, and Jordan Shopov in Melbourne, thanks for coming on and uh, 
and outlining some of your knowledge on the housing state of the housing market in Australia. Pleasure, guys. Great chatting with you again. As always. And thank you, dear listeners, for tuning into that episode of the Jacobs podcast. Uh, that episode did run a little bit long, but I'm sure if you if you're able to listen to it the whole way, you're able to glean a lot of uh, knowledge. Again, there is a link in the show notes to uh, Jordan's newsletter as part of Week Capital. It really is an insightful and really useful bit of analysis. And unlike anything in depth I've read on the housing market in Australia, I think wherever you lie on this debate, it's worth having um, a read of. And uh, look, I thank you very much for listening to the podcast. Again, whatever medium you listen to, whether it's Spotify or Spotify, pardon me, or Apple podcasts, uh, please rate or leave a review. Um, and please drop me a line too at um, seanjacobs.com.au if you have any ideas for future podcasts. I'm all ears and I will get in touch and reply. So thanks very much, dear listeners, and until next time.